daily lives if we call ourselves followers of Christ. But before we go any farther, I'd like to make a recommendation to you. If you are still wondering how you're going to spend that money that Aunt Gertrude sent you for Christmas, then I would recommend this book. This is a book by Timothy Keller called Prayer. It's a very simple title to remember. And I've been using this book as I've been preparing uh, for this sermon series. I'm using it as I prepare for the individual sermons of this series. There are quotes, there are illustrations in here that I'm using in these sermons. So if you choose to buy this book, if you want to go a little bit deeper into what prayer is all about and what the Bible teaches about prayer, you'll see things that are familiar. But this book has been immensely helpful to me in terms of sermon preparation, but it's also been very helpful for my own personal prayer life, too. So I'd highly recommend that book to you. Now, even though we live in a society where Christianity is becoming a little bit less prevalent and what we see it in the public, public sector. Even though Christianity is becoming a little bit less prevalent, prayer is not becoming less prevalent. In fact, many people out there in our society love the idea of prayer, even if they aren't followers of Jesus. There are many influential people, CEOs or politicians, who are fond of taking retreats or pilgrimages, not because they're Christians— But because vague spirituality is pretty popular these days, some idea of meditation, some idea of prayer, even if it isn't truly Christian meditation or prayer. In a study in 2004, 30% of self-proclaimed atheists said they sometimes pray. Another study said that 17% of nonbelievers pray regularly. Now, you might hear that and think, That's kind of contradictory. Why would someone who doesn't believe in God pray? Especially, why would they pray regularly if God doesn't exist? But the point of that study, and I think what it reveals, is this. Even if doctrinally sound, biblical Christianity is not quite as common as it once was in our society, prayer is still alive and kicking. People still really like the idea of prayer. The idea of intimacy with God, even if they aren't followers of Jesus. But that being said, if we live in a world where biblical Christianity isn't quite as common as it used to be, but prayer is still very popular, we live in a world where people are confused at best about who it is they're praying to. They're confused at best when it comes to the purpose of prayer in the first place. And many people are confused at best when it comes to knowing whether or not their prayers are effective. And so if we live in this world where prayer is popular yet often misunderstood, it is incredibly important that we as followers of Jesus consider our own prayer lives and consider what it means for us to pray to the God who saved us. So with that, if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to 2 Samuel 7. We'll be laying some groundwork for the next several weeks And we'll also examine our first type of prayer for this sermon series. So 2 Samuel 7 is on page 223 of our chair Bibles, if you're using one of those. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. Now, I would be hypocritical to not pray before a sermon on prayer. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given us, all that you've blessed us with as a church, as individuals. Uh, God, thank you for the privilege that 
we have of meeting together uh, and offering our worship to you, as Mark mentioned. Uh, Thank you for the privilege that we have of praying to you and being confident that you hear us as we explore a little bit about what that means this morning. God, I pray that you'll watch over this time, that you will clear our hearts and clear our minds of what might distract us from you and what might distract us from our word. I pray that your word would be effective, that it would encourage and comfort and challenge and convict wherever you see fit. So God, let your spirit be active. Let your word be active this morning and give us ears to hear. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Jesus name. Amen. And P.S. Go Colts. So now second Samuel seven, as we read this passage by the author of this book, we find Daniel, David, rather at a time that is unlike any other time in his reign. Arguably, 2 Samuel 7, this passage that we're about to read, arguably this is the high point of David's reign. He's been anointed king over Israel. He is king of God's people. And it's never going to get any better than this for King David. His enemies have been defeated. There are no threats from outside the kingdom anywhere close. The kingdom is secure. The kingdom is prosperous. The people are content. There's no threats inside the kingdom for a rebellion or an uprising. But more than anything, what makes this a great time in David's reign is that his relationship with God is flourishing. The God who anointed him king, the one who put him in this position in the first place, David is relating to him in an incredibly intimate way. And things couldn't be any better. So we pick up in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 7. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So when your kingdom is secure, when there aren't threats from within or from outside of your kingdom, you can afford to sit down and think about ideas like this. David sits down one day and he decides, you know, I think I want to build a temple for the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant in that time symbolized God's presence amongst the people of Israel. When the Ark wasn't there, things weren't really great and people were desperate to get the Ark back. So when they have the ark of God, David looks at it and says, you know, it's a travesty that I have a nicer house than God does. It's a shame that I live in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant is in a tent. Now, we can certainly assume that David wants to do this for the right reasons. His relationship with God is flourishing. So we can certainly assume that David's not doing this just as some political calculation. He's not doing this with some ulterior motive. He truly wants to glorify God in building him this house. So Nathan comes up with his idea. He goes to Nathan and he throws his idea out there. Now, Nathan, being the prophet, his role was to speak to God on behalf of the people and also to speak to the people on behalf of God. So it's understandable that David would want to get Nathan's input. Nathan, certainly, we can assume, takes some time to think about it and pray about it and consult God about this idea. And then he comes back to David and he says, all right, David, go do what the Lord has put on your heart. He blesses David's desire to build the temple. And then Nathan and David 
go their separate ways. The project presumably is going to start. But then God speaks into the story. In verse 4, God addresses Nathan. He gives Nathan a big message to give to David. God says that he hasn't had a temple ever since the days where he freed the Israelites from Egypt, from captivity, from oppression, and that ever since he's had to dwell in that tent. As God talks to Nathan, he recounts how faithful he has been to David all this time, all these years. He's been with David every single step of the way as he rose to king through good times and bad times. He's defeated David's enemies. Specifically, he defeated Saul, the king who came before David. And at different points in David's life, sought to kill David. God took care of Saul. God has blessed David in the past. He's blessing him right now with a great time in his reign as king. And he's going to continue blessing him in the future. And as you read verses 4 through the first half of verse 11, it's pretty safe to say that God is pleased with David's idea. God is pleased with David's request that he would want to build a temple for him. But then God gets to the big part of what he's telling Nathan and what he knows Nathan will tell David. God gives a massive promise, starting in the second half of verse 11. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I really don't want us to miss just how huge this promise is. That God gives to David. He promises offspring, and back then for a king, nothing mattered more than offspring to take over from you when you pass away, to carry on your legacy, to carry on the family name, to keep the rule within the family. So David's going to get offspring. God says that he'll establish his offspring's kingdom. This won't be one of those situations where the son takes over and things don't go well. God says, I'm going to establish his kingdom. He tells David that his offspring will build him a house, that his offspring will have a house of his own. He says that David's offspring will have a very unique relationship with God. In fact, God says it will be like a father son relationship, a close, intimate relationship, even more intimate and close than what David had with God. And then God says that my love will never depart from your offspring forever. Multiple times, God says forever. Your offspring's kingdom will be established forever. I will build you a house forever. I will be a father to him forever. My steadfast love will remain on him forever. It's a huge promise. 
that God gives David in this passage. And so now imagine being in David's shoes. Imagine hearing all of this. You just wanted to make a temple. You looked at your house, didn't think it was right that your house was bigger than God's house. And so you just thought it was a good idea. And all of a sudden, God gives you this massive promise. How do you think David would react to that? How can you react to that? Well, I would certainly imagine that David probably reacted with an overwhelming sense of awe. And that's the first type of prayer I'd like to talk about this morning. The prayer of awe. Let's look at David's prayer in 2 Samuel 7, 18. As he hears all of this stuff from Nathan, how he then responds. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? So the first thing David does is he gets this promise from God as he prays. That's a pretty good start. But then look at the first words that David says in this prayer. The first three words. Who am I? Who am I? I would argue that as we consider prayer, having a conversation with God, that's a great question for us to ask as well. Who am I? I mean, seriously, think about it. Who are we to approach the God of the universe, the one who created everything you see just by speaking? Who are we to approach him in prayer? Who are we to approach the one who has always existed outside of the limits of time in a way that we can't even fully fathom? Who are we to approach in prayer? The one who is the perfect mix of grace and justice, power and mercy, holiness and patience, love and wrath. Who are we to approach him when he mixes those things perfectly, even though we so often mix them up entirely? Who do we think we are to approach God in prayer? Look at what Psalm 130 verse 3 says. The psalmist writes, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who can stand before God? Who are we to stand before God in prayer? He is so perfect, and yet we are so imperfect. What gives us the boldness and what makes us have the audacity to approach this God in prayer? To even think that we're worthy of having a conversation with him. Well, we can approach God in prayer because of what Jesus has done. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Paul writes in that passage, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So Paul says that Christ gave himself up for our sins. He gave himself up as a ransom. Imagine a ransom as exactly what it sounds like. It's something where a person pays a price to free someone else or get someone else off the hook. And Paul says that Christ paid our ransom as he sacrificed himself. He sacrificed himself at the perfect time. And so Paul says that Christ is our mediator. 
the author of Hebrews uses that same word, mediator, as he stresses Jesus' role as the middleman of sorts between God and men. He stresses Jesus' role as mediator, saying that men can approach God with confidence and men can approach God with boldness, not because of anything that they've done, but they can approach God because of what Christ has done. And so the natural outcome for us as followers of Jesus is that his perfect obedience, his sacrificial death, his resurrection allow us the privilege of coming into God's presence, of approaching the God of the universe in prayer and doing so with confidence that he actually hears us. The only reason that we can dare approach God in prayer is because of what Christ has done on our behalf, because he is our mediator, because his blood was shed and his body was broken. We can approach God in prayer because of what he has done. But we do approach God in prayer because of something else, someone else. We do approach God in prayer because God has given us the Holy Spirit. Look at what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. He writes there, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So Paul again hits at this idea of a slave type scenario. The first passage in 1 Timothy, he talked about paying a ransom. How Christ paid the ransom to set us free from the slavery of sin. But then he hits on this slave type thing again in this passage. And he says that because of what Christ has done, you're just not a freed slave. You are more than a freed slave. You have now become a son. You have become a daughter, a child of God. And because you are sons, children of God, you have the Holy Spirit. And because you have the Holy Spirit, you cry out to God. That's the way Paul's logic works. But then when he adds that phrase about Abba, Father, Paul's hitting at something even deeper. He's hitting at the fact that we don't cry out to God as some distant, unknowable, arm's length deity. We cry out to him the way a child cries out to their father. We cry out to him with a close, loving relationship, not some relationship that is completely based on fear of punishment. Or some relationship that is out of obligation. We cry out to God, not as some distant, unknowable deity, but as the father who saved us. The one who sent his son to die for us. The one who gave us his Holy Spirit. That's how we cry out to God. And if we take this point seriously, if we take Paul's logic seriously, That we cry out to God because he has given us his Holy Spirit. If we take scripture seriously when it teaches that every single Christian has the Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. Then we come to a challenging conclusion. The conclusion is this. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't pray. Think about that. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't pray. 
Now, I'm not talking about the Christian who is new to their faith and is still kind of figuring this whole prayer thing out. That's not who we're talking about. We're not talking about the Christian who's going through a lull right now in their relationship with Christ and has kind of fallen off the wagon a little bit and isn't spending quite as much time with God as they once did. We're not talking about that person. We're not talking about the person who has been dealing with tragedy or pain or suffering, and they're still trying to wrap their minds around what praying to God even looks like in light of that pain, in light of that suffering. We're talking about the Christian who has no desire to be with their father. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't pray. We approach God eagerly. We anticipate our time with God because he has given us his Holy Spirit and we want to cry out. We want to spend time with him. We want to be in his presence because he saved us. So we approach God in prayer because he's given us his Holy Spirit. We don't approach God in prayer to earn favor with him or stay out of the doghouse We don't approach him in prayer just because we think, well, maybe if we spend more time with him, he'll bless us a little bit more. Or maybe we'll start to get on his good side a little bit more than we are now. That's not how we approach God in prayer. We don't approach God in prayer just to get the stuff that we want. Like the child who only checks in with mom and dad when they need money. That's not what our relationship with God is like. We don't approach God in prayer out of religious duty. Just so that we can say that we accomplished all the tasks, that we checked all the boxes, that we jumped through all the hoops, that we successfully kept up the religious routine. That is not why we approach God in prayer. We approach God in prayer because we are his children and because we have an unquenchable desire to be in his presence and because we are in complete and utter awe of what it is that he's done for us. William Cowper writes, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Back to the slave child scenario. I'd like you to imagine a slave master who walks in amongst all of his slaves to check in on how they're doing on the day's work. And he's made it clear that when he walks in the room, he wants his slaves to stand up. He wants his slaves to acknowledge him as a sign of respect or as a sign of submission. And so every single time that slave master walks into the presence of the slaves, they stand up. Not because they want to, but because they have to. Because it's in the best interest of their own survival as much as they hate doing it. And then imagine the slave master walking into his living room. And his child is there playing with toys on the ground. That child will stand up, greet the slave master, not as a slave master, but as a father. That child will greet him not out of obligation, not out of duty, not just out of respect or because he's been ordered to. That child will greet him because he views him as a father. There's a difference in that relationship. We don't pray to God out of duty. We pray to God out of joy and love and a desire to be in his presence. Because as Cowper writes, God has transformed us from a slave into a child. And religious duty has become a choice. 
So when we realize the gravity of prayer, when we consider just how bold it is to approach the God of the universe with our words, with our needs, with our praise, with our desire, with our confession, when we realize that we can only approach God in prayer because of what Christ has done on our behalf, and that we only do approach God in prayer because the Holy Spirit spurs us on to prayer, when we approach God, not just to stay on his good side, not just to get more stuff, not just out of religious routine. When we approach God out of an unquenchable desire to be in his presence, then just like David in this prayer that we're about to read, we'll find ourselves praying with a mind blowing sense of awe. Look at Second Samuel seven verses 19 through 29, closing out that passage. This is the rest of David's prayer to God, the rest of his response. Normally, I wouldn't read a passage this long, but we're going to read all of it because I do think it's important to see how David prays to God. Starting in verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servants, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. It's a little bit repetitive of a prayer, isn't it? David kind of seems to be saying the same things over and over again. But the things that he says are important. He says that there is no God like the God of Israel. At moments, David seems to be confused when he says, what more can I say? Who am I to come into your presence? No other God is like you because there are no other gods but you. Who are we that you have blessed us in this way? But then one of the things that David says that I find particularly interesting is that as he makes a request that God would keep this promise, that God would fulfill this word, you notice that David does it with a specific reason. David doesn't ask God to keep this promise and fulfill this 
covenant that God has made with him, he doesn't ask him to keep it so that David's name will be glorified, so that his legacy will live on, so that he'll go down in the pages of history as the greatest king and the greatest family who ever lived. David asks God to fulfill this promise so that he would be glorified by it. As David prays with this sense of awe, with this sense of humility, not even knowing what to say sometimes, repeating himself because he's so in awe of God, his biggest concern is that God would be glorified. We pray with the same sense of awe as David. In fact, if anything, we pray with an even greater sense of awe than David had. David never saw this promise fulfilled, but the promise was fulfilled. Some people thought the promise would be fulfilled in Solomon because Solomon certainly had his moments of greatness. But Solomon didn't fulfill the promise either. David's son. The promise would be fulfilled and we've seen it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the true offspring of David. He is the one who has that father-son relationship with God. He is the one of perfect obedience. He is the one who is punished with the stripes of men. He is the one who gave the perfect sacrifice. And he is the one who was victoriously resurrected from the dead. And as followers of Jesus, we believe that it's his kingdom that will live forever. So as we pray, I pray that we'll do so with a sense of awe for what Christ has done. I pray that we will be in awe of the fact that God has given us his Holy Spirit. I pray that we will be in awe of the privilege that we have to speak to the God of the universe. We can only approach God in prayer because of what Christ has done. We can only approach God in prayer because he has given us his Holy Spirit. And I pray that that will continue to awe us every single day. Let's pray right now. Father, let us never lose the sense of awe as we come to you in prayer. Let us never take for granted just how incredible a privilege and how mind-blowing it is that we can be driving in our cars or reading a book or working or going to school or, or doing anything. That we can be doing all of those things and then approach you in prayer. Give you our praise. Give you our worship. Make requests of you. God, I pray that we'll never lose sight of just how amazing that is. I pray that we would be in awe of what you've done through your son, Jesus. That we would be in awe of the cross, his broken body and his shed blood. I pray that we would be in awe of the resurrection. I pray that we'd be in awe of the fact that you've given us the Holy Spirit. Really, I pray that our entire lives would be characterized by just a sense of awe for what you've done. May we never lose sight of the privilege that we have of approaching you in prayer. May we never forget what it is that had to be done so that we could approach you with boldness and with confidence. And may we never forget just how incredible you are. Give us an unquenchable desire to be in your presence. Help us to view you as our father, not as a slave master, but as the one who saved us 
the one who's redeemed us. And I pray that it will change our lives and change our prayers forever. We love you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have not yet accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you don't know what it means for Christ to be your mediator between you and God, I pray that you would talk to one of our elders this morning. They'd be happy to talk to you, happy to pray with you, happy to answer questions that you might have of what it means for Christ to be your mediator, of what it means when what Christ did for you. Talk to one of those guys. They'd be happy to answer your questions.